Chapter 8 of Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pellucidar. Chapter 8 Captive. When Gork and his people saw that I had no token, they commenced to taunt me. You do not come from Coke, but from the Sly One, they cried. He has sent you from the island to spy upon us. Go away, or we will set upon you and kill you. I explained that all my belongings had been stolen from me, and that the robber must have taken the token too, but they didn't believe me. As proof that I was one of Hooja's people, they pointed to my weapons, which they said were ornamented like those of the island clan. Further, they said that no good man went in company with a Jalak, and that by this line of reasoning I certainly was a bad man. I saw that they were not naturally a warlike tribe, for they preferred that I leave in peace rather than force them to attack me, whereas the Sarians would have killed a suspicious stranger first and inquired into his purposes later. I think Raja sensed their antagonism, for he kept tugging at his leash and growling ominously. They were a bit in awe of him and kept at a safe distance. It was evident that they could not comprehend why it was that this savage brute did not turn upon me and rend me. I wasted a long time there trying to persuade Gork to accept me at my own valuation, but he was too canny. The best he would do was to give us food, which he did, and direct me as to the safest portion of the island upon which to attempt a landing, though even as he told me I am sure that he thought my request for information but a blind to deceive him as to my true knowledge of the insular stronghold. At last I turned away from them, rather disheartened, for I had hoped to be able to enlist a considerable force of them in an attempt to rush Huja's horde and rescue Dian. Back along the beach toward the hidden canoe we made our way. By the time we came to the cairn I was dog-tired. Throwing myself upon the sand, I soon slept, and with Raja stretched out beside me, I felt a far greater security than I had enjoyed for a long time. I awoke much refreshed to find Raja's eyes glued upon me. The moment I opened mine, he rose, stretched himself, and without a backward glance, plunged into the jungle. For several minutes I could hear him crashing through the brush. Then all was silent. I wondered if he had left me to return to his fierce pack. A feeling of loneliness overwhelmed me. With a sigh I turned to the work of dragging the canoe down to the sea. As I entered the jungle where the dugout lay a hare darted from beneath the boat's side, and a well-aimed cast of my javelin brought it down. I was hungry, I had not realized it before, so I sat upon the edge of the canoe and devoured my repast. The last remnants gone, I again busied myself with preparations for my expedition to the island. I did not know for certain that Dean was there, but I surmised as much, nor could I guess what obstacles might confront me in an effort to rescue her. For a time I loitered about after I had the canoe at the water's edge, hoping against hope that Raja would return. But he did not so I shoved the awkward craft through the surf and leapt into it. I was still a little downcast by the desertion of my new-found friend, though I tried to assure myself that it was nothing but what I might have expected. 
the savage brute had served me well in the short time that we had been together, and had repaid his debt of gratitude to me, since he had saved my life, or at least my liberty, no less certainly than I had saved his life when he was injured and drowning. The trip across the water to the island was uneventful. I was mighty glad to be in the sunshine again when I passed out of the shadow of the dead world about halfway between the mainland and the island. The hot rays of the noonday sun did a great deal toward raising my spirits, and dispelling the mental gloom in which I had been shrouded almost continually since entering the land of awful shadow. There is nothing more dispiriting to me than the absence of sunshine. I had paddled to the southwestern point, which Gourke said he believed to be the least frequented portion of the island, as he had never seen boats put off from there. I found a shallow reef running far out into the sea, and rather precipitous cliffs running almost to the surf. It was a nasty place to land, and I realize now why it was not used by the natives, but at last I managed after a good wetting, to beach my canoe and scale the cliffs. The country beyond them appeared more open and park-like than I had anticipated, since from the mainland the entire coast that is visible seems densely clothed with tropical jungle. This jungle, as I could see from the vantage point of the cliff-top, formed but a relatively narrow strip between the sea and the more open forest and meadow of the interior. Farther back there was a range of low but apparently very rocky hills, and here and there all about were visible flat-topped masses of rock, small mountains in fact, which reminded me of pictures I had seen of landscapes in New Mexico. Altogether the country was very much broken and very beautiful. From where I stood I counted no less than a dozen streams winding down from among the table buttes and emptying into a pretty river which flowed away in a northeasterly direction toward the opposite end of the island. As I let my eyes roam over the scene I suddenly became aware of figures moving upon the flat top of a far distant butte. Whether they were beast or human, though, I could not make out, but at least they were alive so I determined to prosecute my search for Huja's stronghold in the general direction of this butte. To descend to the valley required no great effort. As I swung along through the lush grass and the fragrant flowers, my cudgel swinging in my hand and my javelin looped across my shoulders with its aerox-hide strap, I felt equal to any emergency, ready for any danger. I had covered quite a little distance, and I was passing through a strip of wood which lay at the foot of one of the flat-topped hills, when I became conscious of the sensation of being watched. My life within Pellucidar has rather quickened my senses of sight, hearing, and smell, and, too, certain primitive, intuitive, or instinctive qualities that seem blunted in civilized man. But though I was positive that eyes were upon me, I could see no sign of any living thing within the wood other than the many gay-plumaged birds and little monkeys which filled the trees with life, color, and action. To you it may seem that my conviction was the result of an overwrought imagination, or to the actual reality of the prying eyes of the little monkeys or the curious ones of the birds. But there is a difference which I cannot explain between the sensation of casual observation and studied espionage. 
a sheep might gaze at you without transmitting a warning through your subjective mind, because you are in no danger from a sheep. But let a tiger gaze fixedly at you from ambush, and unless your primitive instincts are completely calloused, you will presently commence to glance furtively about and be filled with vague, unreasoning terror. Thus it was with me then. I grasped my cudgel more firmly and unslung my javelin, carrying it in my left hand. I peered to my left and right, but I saw nothing. Then, all quite suddenly, there fell about my neck and shoulders, around my arms and body, a number of pliant fiber ropes. In a jiffy I was trussed up as neatly as you might wish. One of the nooses dropped to my ankles and was jerked up with a suddenness that brought me to my face upon the ground. Then something heavy and hairy sprang upon my back. I fought to draw my knife, but hairy hands grasped my wrists and, dragging them behind my back, bound them securely. Next my feet were bound. Then I was turned over upon my back to look up into the faces of my captors. And what faces! Imagine, if you can, a cross between a sheep and a gorilla, and you will have some conception of the physiognomy of the creature that bent close above me, and of those of the half-dozen others that clustered about. There was the facial length and great eyes of the sheep, and the bull-neck and hideous fangs of the gorilla. The bodies and limbs were both man and gorilla-like. As they bent over me they conversed in a monosyllabic tongue that was perfectly intelligible to me. It was something of a simplified language that had no need for aught but nouns and verbs, but such words as it included were the same as those of the human beings of Pellucidar. It was amplified by many gestures which filled in the speech-gaps. I asked them what they intended doing with me but, like our own North American Indians, when questioned by a white man, they pretended not to understand me. One of them swung me to his shoulder as lightly as if I had been a shoat. He was a huge creature, as were his fellows, standing fully seven feet upon his short legs and weighing considerably more than a quarter of a ton. Two went ahead of my bearer and three behind. In this order we cut to the right through the forest to the foot of the hill where precipitous cliffs appeared to bar our further progress in this direction. But my escort never paused. Like ants upon a wall, they scaled that seemingly unscalable barrier, clinging, heaven knows how, to its ragged perpendicular face. During most of the short journey to the summit, I must admit that my hair stood on end. Presently, however, we topped the thing and stood upon the level mesa which crowned it. Immediately, from all about, out of burrows and rough, rocky lairs, poured a perfect torrent of beasts similar to my captors. They clustered about, jabbering at my guards and attempting to get their hands upon me, whether from curiosity or a desire to do me bodily harm I did not know, since my escort with bared fangs and heavy blows kept them off. Across the mesa we went to stop at last before a large pile of rocks in which an opening appeared. Here my guard set me upon my feet and called out a word which sounded like Gur, 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 and which I later learned was the name of their king. Presently there emerged from the cavernous depths of the lair a monstrous creature, scarred from a hundred battles, 
almost hairless and with an empty socket where one eye had been. The other eye, sheep-like in its mildness, gave the most startling appearance to the beast, which but for that single timid orb was the most fearsome thing that one could imagine. I had encountered the black, hairless, long-tailed ape, things of the mainland, the creatures that Perry thought might constitute the link between the higher orders of apes and man. But these brute-men of gur-gur-gur seemed to set that theory back to zero. For there was less similarity between the black ape-men and these creatures than there was between the latter and man, while both had many human attributes, some of which were better developed in one species and some in the other. The black apes were hairless and built thatched huts in their arboreal retreats. They kept domesticated dogs and ruminants, in which respect they were farther advanced than the human beings of Pellucidar. But they appeared to have only a meager language and sported long, ape-like tails. On the other hand, Gur-Gur-Gur's people were for the most part quite hairy but they were tailless and had a language similar to that of the human race of Pellucidar. Nor were they arboreal. Their skins, where skin showed, were white. From the foregoing facts and others that I have noted during my long life within Pellucidar, which is now passing through an age analogous to some pre-glacial age of the outer crust, I am constrained to the belief that evolution is not so much a gradual transition from one form to another as it is an accident of breeding, either by crossing or the hazards of birth. In other words, it is my belief that the first man was a freak of nature, nor would one have to draw over strongly upon his credulity to be convinced that Gur-Gur-Gur and his tribe were also freaks. The great man-brute seated himself upon a flat rock, his throne, I imagine, just before the entrance to his lair. With elbows on knees and chin in palms, he regarded me intently through his lone sheep-eye, while one of my captors told of my taking. When all had been related, Gur-Gur-Gur questioned me. I shall not attempt to quote these people in their own abbreviated tongue. You would have even greater difficulty in interpreting them than did I. Instead, I shall put the words into their mouths which will carry to you the ideas which they intended to convey. You are an enemy, was Gur-Gur-Gur's initial declaration. You belong to the tribe of Huja. Ah, so they knew Huja, and he was their enemy. Good. I am an enemy of Huja, I replied. He has stolen my mate, and I have come here to take her away from him and punish Huja. How could you do that alone? I do not know, I answered but I should have tried had you not captured me. What do you intend to do with me? You shall work for us. You will not kill me? I asked. We do not kill except in self-defense, he replied, self-defense and punishment. Those who would kill us and those who do wrong we kill. If we knew you were one of Huja's people we might kill you, for all Huja's people are bad people but you say you are an enemy of Huja. You may not speak the truth, but until we learn that you have lied we shall not kill you. You shall work." "'If you hate Huja,' I suggested, "'why not let me, who hate him too, go and punish him?' 
For some time Gur-Gur-Gur sat in thought. Then he raised his head and addressed my guard. "'Take him to his work,' he ordered. His tone was final. As if to emphasize it, he turned and entered his burrow. My guard conducted me farther into the mesa, where we came presently to a tiny depression or valley, at one end of which gushed a warm spring. The view that opened before me was the most surprising thing I have ever seen. In the hollow, which must have covered several hundred acres, were numerous fields of growing things, and working all about with crude implements or with no implements at all other than their bare hands, were many of the brute men engaged in the first agriculture that I had seen within Pellucidar. They put me to work cultivating in a patch of melons. I never was a farmer, nor particularly keen for this sort of work, but I am free to confess that time never had dragged so heavily as it did during the hour or the year I spent there at that work. How long it really was I do not know, of course, but it was all too long. The creatures that worked about me were quite simple and friendly. One of them proved to be a son of Gur Gur Gur. He had broken some minor tribal law and was working out his sentence in the fields. He told me that his tribe had lived upon this hilltop always, and that there were other tribes like them dwelling upon other hilltops. They had no wars and had always lived in peace and harmony, menaced only by the larger carnivora of the island, until my kind had come under a creature called Huja and attacked and killed them when they chanced to descend from their natural fortresses to visit their fellows upon other lofty mesas. Now they were afraid. But some day they would go in a body and fall upon Huja and his people and slay them all. I explained to him that I was Huja's enemy and asked, when they were ready to go, that I be allowed to go with them, or, better still, that they let me go ahead and learn all that I could about the village where Huja dwelt, so that they might attack it with the best chance of success. Gur-Gur-Gur's son seemed much impressed by my suggestion. He said that when he was through in the fields he would speak to his father about the matter. Some time after this Gur-Gur-Gur came through the fields where we were, and his son spoke to him upon the subject but the old gentleman was evidently in anything but a good humor, for he cuffed the youngster and, turning upon me, informed me that he was convinced that I had lied to him and that I was one of Huja's people. Wherefore, he concluded, we shall slay you as soon as the melons are cultivated. Hasten, therefore. And hasten I did. I hastened to cultivate the weeds which grew among the melon vines. Where there had been one sickly weed before, I nourished two healthy ones. When I found a particularly promising variety of weed growing elsewhere than among my melons, I forthwith dug it up and transplanted it among my charges. My masters did not seem to realize my perfidy. They saw me always laboring diligently in the melon patch, and, as time enters not into the reckoning of Pellucidarians, even of human beings, and much less of brutes and half-brutes, I might have lived on indefinitely through this subterfuge had not that occurred which took me out of the melon-patch for good and all. End of chapter 8